Well, some tend to believe, in fact, I talk to a lot of people uh, that say these things, that there was a time when you could speak the truth and people just accepted it without argument and without question. Some of us really believe that there was a time like that. In fact, I remember hearing my mom and dad talk very often about, well, back in our day, you know, back in the 40s, back in the 50s, back in, you know, back in that day, boy, people were just... Let me just start out this series by telling you, I don't ever think there was a time like that. I really don't. I don't ever think that there was such a time when people did not question things, when people just accepted things without argument, without question. People have always reacted to words or to statements that challenge the cultural norm or the popular opinion. It's always been that way. And that's become necessary over the past uh, 15 to 20 years to be very careful in what you say and who you say it to. I, I say that as a guy that uh, probably by some temperament studies would be labeled as a type A, high D, all right? Those type of people just tend to say what they think, what they feel, what they believe is right. And so you can imagine a, a guy with a temperament like mine living in a society like this. I am very sensitive to the fact that I recognize that there are certain things that just should not be said. <laughs> some of you are going, you do? I, I didn't... I try to recognize that. There are certain things that should not be said in certain contexts. I am oftentimes driving down the road and I think something, I see something, I observe something, and I say to Diana, doesn't that just, don't you just want to? And she goes, no, not really. I don't understand that because I don't even know those people. I don't even really know what's going on, but I just feel like I need to say something. Anybody out here that can relate to me? I know there's a few of you that are out there. Yeah. It's become very convenient over the last 15 to 20 years that uh, we be politically correct. And we've started to use that statement. In fact, I looked up where that statement first uh, began to be used, and it was in the 90s, where people began to talk about things that are politically correct and things that are politically incorrect. We now have, believe it or not, if you go online, we have a politically correct dictionary for those of us that struggle to find politically correct words or statements. Let me give some of you them to you this morning. Uh, for example, the term criminal has now been replaced by behaviorally challenged. I found this to be interesting when I was looking at this particular dictionary online. A ball boy is replaced with ball child. Or in my case, ball man, you know, because that's, well, you know, if you've been here any length of time. You no longer complain, you now share. You don't complain, you share. Bald is not bald, it's hair disadvantaged. I thought this was really funny uh, given our ministries here at Northwest. Gang has been replaced with youth group. Now, I don't necessarily know exactly what that means as an old youth pastor. I'm not sure exactly. I'm hoping that somebody made a mistake there. Lazy, get this, lazy has been replaced with of different interests. Not lazy, I just have different interests than you. Failure, you'll like this one, failure has been replaced by deferred success. <laughs> and right now I'm a failure, but one day I will be successful. So rather than calling me a failure, let's just say it's deferred success. Uh, given a man of my size, I like this, fat has been replaced by enlarged physical condition caused by a completely natural, genetically induced hormone imbalance. <laughs> All right? So if Gussie were here this morning and I see that she's not, tell her, 
no longer is it fat. She uses the whole phrase or nothing, all right? I like this one. Founding fathers is now too sexist. Instead, we use the term the founders. We wouldn't want to exclude all those great female leaders of the 18th century uh, in America, would we? And so we use the founders rather than the founding fathers. The garbage man has been replaced by the sanitation engineer. A garbage man picks up garbage, but evidently a sanitation engineer engineers the garbage. A housewife has been replaced by a domestic engineer. This is to remove the necessity of marriage from the task of raising children. It's a derogatory term. (laughs) I thought these last two were fairly funny. A jungle has been replaced by rainforest. They went on to say a rainforest is a happy place where Disney characters dance and sing. A jungle is a scary place with lions, tigers, malaria, and natives that want to cut off your head and boil it for dinner. Who in their right mind would want to save that? (laughs) Right? So therefore, we call it the rainforest rather than the jungle. The swamp has been replaced by wetlands. If you've built anything, you, you understand that terminology. Swamps are full of alligators, bugs, and disease. If anybody went around saying that we need to save the swamps, people would think they were out of their minds. So we call it a wetland. You know, I'm reminded that as I read through the Gospels that Jesus spent three years of his 33 years here on this earth in public ministry. And if you're a student of the Word of God, if you have studied and and you've read the Word of God, more in particular the Gospels, you know that a good portion of those three years of ministry, Jesus spent regularly upsetting people regularly challenging the cultural norms. In fact, I, I, as a guy with my temperament, take great comfort in the fact that Jesus, the God of the universe, the shepherd of our souls, that, that I think sometimes he delighted in doing that. I think sometimes as he sat with people that thought that they had it all figured out and that everything was just neatly arranged and and Jesus would say something and Pharisees would get upset. The common man would walk away perplexed because he challenged the cultural norms and they did not sit well with people when he did that. Over the next uh, several weeks, I want to take some of those politically incorrect statements and I want to explore them just a little more closely than we usually do. Now, here's the challenge for me. As I come into one of these politically incorrect statements, you all know that they're set in a context, right? And context is very, very important when we teach and understand the Word of God. We've we've said that over and over and over again. It's very important that you understand context. In this series, based on what we're trying to do, it's not impossible to exposit a whole text. In fact, this morning I started out with about eight verses and I ended up with two and really one verse so that we could get this down to very, very simple statements and have you really chew on just very, very, very basic things. You see, sometimes it's easy to walk into a place like this, and especially if you are a student of the Word, and go, tell me something I don't know. I think so many times the challenge for me personally, not as a pastor, but for me just as a Christ follower, is not to learn something new but to start doing what I already know to be truth. Maybe some of you struggle with that as well. And so that's what we want to do over these next uh, several weeks. Now, setting us up for this politically incorrect statement that we're going to look at this morning, you need to understand, and I hope you'll agree with me, that we live in a culture here in the Triangle where it is very socially acceptable 
to go to church. It is even not just okay to go to church. It's really okay to even call yourself a Christian as long as you don't push that off on other people. The question then becomes, how is it possible to know if you're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ or if you're just a fan? How do you know who's a true follower and who's someone who's just simply along for the ride? I, I think Jesus might have had those questions in mind when he, uh, when he uh, said the words that we're going to study in our text this morning. Now, I want to just setting it up before we get into this particular verse. I want to say this emphatically this morning, that salvation, I believe, is a free gift. There are some of you this morning that are going to, because you are uh, real students of the word, you're going to recognize a debate that I'm kind of in turmoil with uh, here, uh, with, which is the lordship salvation uh, debate. And some of you understand that. Others of you just let that fly right over your head just for right now, and, and you'll kind of understand what I mean here in just a few moments. I believe, however, that a relationship with Jesus begins when we recognize that our sin debt is so great that we can't possibly pay for it ourselves. We place our trust in Jesus Christ alone as our Savior, as the payment for our sin, and we are forgiven. We are justified. Our sin is no longer held against us. The debt's paid. And so, in a very real sense, grace is free for us. Now, now when I say that, grace is free for us, but you have to understand that, that, that for, for Jesus, it cost him his life. And, and not just a sudden death, but a cruel, agonizing death on the cross. That's what grace cost him. In order for grace to be extended to you and to me as sinners, it cost him his life on a cross. So for us, it's free. For him, it was very costly. That's the doctrine of justification. We talked about that last week on Reformation Sunday. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Hebrews 9, 22, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Romans three twenty eight. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, here's another term that you need to understand, and I know some of you are new uh, believers. You are new followers of Jesus, and so I want to be careful how I use these terms. Justified is to have your sins no longer held against you. That's what happens at the moment of salvation when we place our trust in Christ alone as our Savior. Sanctification, okay, you'll learn two big words today, some of you. Justification, sanctification follows justification. In justification, our sins are completely forgiven. And sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit invades our life and makes us more like Christ in what we do and what we think and what we desire. We can't live like Jesus uh, until we're justified and that process of sanctification begins in our life. Now, if you have been through our membership materials at Northwest, or if you've been on our website, you know that our purpose here at Northwest, and I'm going to read this to you, is to reach people with the life-changing message of the gospel. That's justification, right? For you to understand that you're a sinner and that there's a sin debt that has to be paid, and for you to understand that Jesus paid that, he paid that so that he might justify you, wipe that sin debt away. That's justification, 
The second part of our purpose statement says this, and to equip people to become fully developing followers of Jesus who impact their world for him. You know what that is? That's sanctification, okay? Justification at salvation, sanctification. In fact, we refer to it oftentimes as progressive sanctification, right? Some would have us believe that when we place our trust in Christ alone, it's like, whoa, I am, I, suddenly I have no desires for any of the things I once desired. I pray to prayer and everything is just, right? I mean, you read some books and there are some very popular pastors, preachers, communicators in our world today that would lead us to believe that. And we sit back and we wonder, why do I still struggle then? Maybe that wasn't real, that, that decision I made to place my trust in Christ alone back there because look at me. Sanctification is progressive. We are becoming more like Jesus. The Bible says that one day when we're with him, we will see him as he is. That's when I will be like him. Until then, I am on a journey. That journey is called sanctification. And all those who have really experienced justification begin that process of sanctification. I'm sure that makes perfect sense to all of you. Now, so the question becomes, how then do you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus? That's what we say we want to do here at Northwest. We want to develop fully devoted, developing followers of Jesus who impact their world for him. How how do you do that? I think Jesus gave us the answer to that question many times throughout the Gospels. And if we don't confuse discipleship, With justification, I think we will understand those things. And I want to look at just one of those statements this morning that he gave us in Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. And as I talk, those of you that have your Bible, I trust you do. You can read the context. You can read a little bit before that, read a little bit after that. We're only going to look at verses 25 and 26. Today, we'll look at others' verses in the days to come. Luke starts out, Dr. Luke starts out, By writing, now large crowds were going along with him. Important to know and to remember that when Jesus traveled around, many times crowds followed him. Pretty incredible thing, right? I mean, you think about this man and his little entourage of these, you know, bunch of misfit guys that he had chosen to be his disciples. And he's walking around and as he walks around and as he goes through different places, people begin to follow him. But Jesus, it's important to understand, is not impressed with their enthusiasm. He knew that most of these in the crowd were not the least bit interested in spiritual things. Some heard that he performed miracles and thought, if I follow him, if I follow him as he does the work of the ministry, I might see some miracle. And so they followed him. Others heard that he fed hungry people. (laughs) And they went, I'm hungry. I know some high school guys would have jumped on the bandwagon just for that. Maybe he'll stop at McDonald's and he will transform three burgers into 3,000 burgers. I don't know, but I'm going to follow that guy because wherever he goes, he feeds people. Some might have just been simply looking for a free meal. A A few of them were following him because I believe that they hoped that he would actually do what they wanted him to do, which was overthrow Rome and establish David's promised kingdom. And all of these people, many of these people were expecting the wrong things. And so Jesus turns to this multitude of people, and and I don't know exactly how this worked. I haven't seen video footage, but I I can picture it in my mind that that Jesus had these people, and as they were following him, at certain points he would just say, okay, stop, sit down. I've got something to say. 
And they would probably sit down. Sometimes it was a hillside. Certainly it was in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus would talk to them. And so Jesus turns to this multitude of people that are following him and he preaches a sermon that deliberately thins out the ranks. He made it clear when it comes to personal discipleship, he's more interested in quality than quantity. Now, if you look back up in verse 23 of this particular chapter, you will see that in the matter of saving lost souls, of people coming into a saving relationship with with Jesus, justification, with regards to that matter, he wants his house to be filled. That's what verse 23 says. That's what his desire is, for his house to be filled with those people who would recognize their need for a Savior. But in the matter of personal discipleship, it's obvious that he only wants those who are willing to pay the price. And so a disciple is a learner. By definition, it's a learner. It's one who attaches himself or herself to a teacher in order to learn a trade or a subject. Perhaps our nearest modern equivalent of a disciple would be an apprentice, right? Some of you have done an apprenticeship. It's one who learns by by watching, but not just by watching, but by doing as well. The word disciple was the most uh, commonly used name for followers of Jesus, and it's used 264 times in the Gospels uh, and uh, in the book of Acts. And so here in this particular text, and this, this will be probably a little stretching for some of you, Uh, But I I really believe this to be the context. Jesus seems to be making a distinction between salvation and discipleship. Salvation is open to all who will come to him by faith. While discipleship is for believers that are willing to pay a price. Salvation means coming to the cross and trusting Jesus Christ alone. While discipleship means carrying the cross and following Jesus Christ. Jesus wants as many sinners saved as possible. But he cautions us not to take discipleship uh, lightly. Now, again, I know we could at this point go off on a very, very long tangent, and I could take you on an eight- to ten-week series on this particular subject. I want to challenge your thought process here, some of you. Others of you, just take a break for a moment, check your email if you're there on your smartphone. But for some of you, I want to challenge you on this particular fact. If Jesus in so many of these texts was referring to salvation. Think about the problems in which we have. Think about a man named Peter who would ultimately pen verses of Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Think about a man named Peter who denied that he even knew Jesus. It doesn't sound very much like he was a true disciple, and if he did that, then he certainly must not have been justified. He must not have been saved. I think there are a lot of other examples where sometimes it's very easy for us to confuse uh, salvation, justification with sanctification. And I think it's very, very important for us not to do that. I think it's important for us to stand on the doctrines which we hold dear to, those doctrines which men and women have died for, and that is the justification by faith alone. We are not saved by doing any good works. And I believe, and for many of us, we have come out of churches where we have been taught sola fide, faith alone in Jesus Christ. And yet at the end of the day, there have been lists of things that have been put on that. And if you don't do these things, if you're not consistent with these things, then you must not be a believer. That, my friends, is not justification by faith alone. 
And I think it's very important for us. Do I understand all of the implications of that? And do I wrestle? Yes, I wrestle all the time. I told my wife just yesterday, I continue to wrestle with these texts. I think that that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to continue to wrestle, to understand, to grasp truth. But I believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, what Scripture teaches is that we are not saved by any good works that we do. Our salvation is not kept by any good works that we do. We are saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and nothing else. Now that I've gotten that politically incorrect statement out of my mouth, let's move on. And he turned to them and he said something very controversial. It's like he looked at the crowds and he thought, now I'm going to say something that's really going to blow your minds. And then look what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's go now. What did he say? What did he mean by that statement? Did he just say what I think he said? I don't think I like that. Hate your father And your mother, brother or sister, I thought to myself this week, see a sister? There were some times when I probably could have bought into that. But hate my mom and my dad? Never. Never. It's very important in this particular politically incorrect statement that Jesus made for us to understand what Jesus meant when he said hate. Most Bible scholars, most linguists believe, and they point out that the underlying word in the original language means to love less. All right? you got your Bible open there, in fact, next to hate, you might want to put hate in parentheses and just, just mark, to love less. In Matthew's parallel, which was given in a different context, Jesus doesn't use the word hate. Rather, he, quote, he is quoted as saying, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, uh, verses 37 to 38. Thus, in Matthew's version, the point is simply that love for God must take priority over love for our families. Now, he was not telling uh, us to hate our families. That would contradict so many other passages in Scripture where he tells uh, children to honor your father and your mother and that that's the first commandment with promise. There would be so many other passages that he would disqualify. He was, in effect, saying that our love for him must take precedence over all of our other loves. When compared to our love for Jesus, the love for our families would look like hate. Now stop there for just a moment and think about that. We would, we would love Jesus so much... Our love for him would be so great and so strong that when we compare it to our love for our mom or our dad or our husband or our wife or our children, that would appear as hate in comparison to how much we love Jesus. What an incredible thing. You can imagine this did not sit well with many people in the crowd. In this culture, uh, like ours, the commitment to family superseded every other commitment in life. And yet Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be a a fully devoted follower of me, then, then you have to live this way. You have to love me the most. Now, doesn't that make you feel better? Uh, for me, no. As Christ followers, we often list our priorities as this. Maybe you've done this. When somebody says, what are your priorities? You say, well, God, of course, God. God. My family, right? My friends, 
And some down, we're down here, especially if we're talking to our boss, we talk about our work. You know, that's important. But we always say God is first. Our family is second. But let me ask you the question this morning. Do we actually live that way? You see, this is such a politically incorrect statement that Jesus makes in this text that when we consider the way that we live rather than simply assuming we live the way that we talk. Stop for just a moment and ask yourself the question, not do I talk this way, but do I live this way? I'd like for you to consider this morning, just in the few minutes that we have left this morning, If it's possible that even those of us who desire to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ really don't love him the most. In in fact, maybe some of our lives are not too different from uh, this couple who attends uh, one of the churches here in the Triangle area. I want you to, for the next few moments, I want you to watch the story of Tim and Jody Jackson. Watch this. Um, Jody and I came to salvation fairly late in life um, and there's a lot of baggage that goes along with coming to salvation late in life. In fact, I remember um, shortly after we started attending church, um, Lauren, my youngest daughter, was in a, a Sunday school class and she was doing a craft project and the craft project was for Father's Day so everyone was making these ceramic coasters and they were probably given a verse to put on that coaster but ironically the verse that uh, Lauren put on on her coaster which she then gave to me was 1 Timothy 1:15 it is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst so out of the mouth of babes you know, um, perhaps Lauren was a, a prophet and she didn't even know it but but that was really uh, kind of symbolic for me because I recognized that that God did reach deeply to save me and, and it was his doing. Well, I came to Christ right before we got married and um, right after we got married, we began to study together every night and um, really delve deep into the word and um, go through a book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, and God really grew us quickly uh, after our marriage and grew us quickly together as well. I remember um, the the early days at the summit for us. Um, Most of the time in church, our our purpose was, what did we get out of the sermon? What did did God teach us in that moment? How, How have we benefited from the lesson we've learned today? And then we'd go home, you know, and, and we'd... We'd get our lunch, we'd hang out in the afternoon, we'd live life together, and, and it was exactly what we wanted to do. He, going and hearing the gospel preached week, that, week after week, and it just became clearer and clearer that God put us here for another reason than just to enjoy our lives and, and to enjoy our families. The teaching we were getting was not just to benefit us, just to grow us, but to equip us to actually then take what we were learning and bring it out into the community somewhere. And, and honestly, we didn't know where that was, but we knew that, that at some point we had to start sacrificing the comforts. It is nice to just come home and have dinner and just hang out with my wife in the evening. But I know that, that God has a greater purpose for us as believers. His, his call is for us 
to take the gospel and make disciples of others. And, and honestly, we, we just can't do that sitting in our living rooms at night after night after night. The, the mission of God needs to go outside of the four walls of the church. And, and that's been prominent in our lives as well. Jody and I have started ministries at a number of, of schools in the local area doing um, mentoring programs, just a, a lot of work. And, and we've gotten to know teachers and we've gotten to know administrators. We've got to share the gospel with them. We've enjoyed that greatly. That's kind of been our Jerusalem in terms of, of the Great Commission when, when Jesus told them to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. And we've enjoyed that. And I, I really believe that you can do that sort of mission work anywhere. It doesn't have to be overseas. It doesn't have to be in Durham. God is calling us all to missions somewhere. For Jody and me, the most recent thing that's developed in our walk with Christ is a call to overseas mission. We have been preparing for the past year now to relocate our lives to Kenya. God has demonstrated to us that he has prepared us specifically for that. He has given me background in training and education in finance and accounting and business development and business growth. And that's the opportunity that is presenting itself in Kenya. But all of us are called to that and all of us are equipped to do that. And it's a matter of understanding where those two things intersect, where your talents, where your skills, where your gifting matches with your passions and the needs in the community or even the ends of the earth. And even though, you know, we're not the right out of college kids that are heading over to the mission field, I think about Abraham. He was called out of um, the land of Ur to the land of Canaan when he was about 75 years old. He's got 20 years on me, and I think we're probably in far better shape than he was when he went out. So we're eager, and we're excited, and we're ready to go, and we're ready to continue to um, dedicate our lives to the mission of God. Wow. I saw Tim and Jody's story last week, and immediately I thought of this passage. These people get it. They get it. They understand it. They understand what Jesus said when he said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to love me the most. See, we're living in a culture that says something very different. We say the God, family, friends. We, We say that, but we don't really live that way. And yet Tim and Jody, I think, just understood in that process of sanctification, they got it. If we're really going to be disciples, then we have to love him the most. They understand what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, a disciple. So let me get to the big idea. It's really a paradox of sorts. You'll see it there in your notes this morning. We love others the best when we love Jesus the most. And I really believe this verse comes down to that. You will love others. He's not telling us not to love other people, but he's saying, when you love me the most, then all of those other relationships you will love, but not unless you love me the most, not unless I am the top priority. It's such a simple statement, but it is profoundly true. And here's why. Men, 
you're going to love your wife the most and the best when you love Jesus the most. You buy into the idea, so many of us do in this culture, that if I just spend more time and, and, and then if I throw some money along with that time, then I will really love her and she'll really know that I love her and we'll have this great, awesome relationship. Let me tell you that that is false. That's what Jesus was saying to these people. You're never going to be a disciple unless you love me the most, unless you are consumed with me being your top priority. And so, men, when God is your number one priority, when your first priority in life is bringing glory to him, you will be a great husband. You will. When, when you are consumed with what Jesus says we are to be consumed with in his word, you're going to be an incredible husband. You don't need to read one more book or go to one more seminar unless you are committed to loving Jesus the most. Ladies, let me not let you skate off uh, unscathed. You will love your husbands the best when you love Jesus the most. Not when you bake him just one more meal that you think he likes and somehow you will attain his satisfaction. Not how when you do one more thing, when you change your hairstyle or when you do this or that for him or when those those things are all meaningless apart from you being passionately in love with Jesus. And when you are passionately in love with Jesus, you will be the kind of companion that brings joy and complete satisfaction to your husband. Why? Because you will be committed to living by biblical principle. And if you love like he loves, we've talked about that. I can't talk about how many times here at Northwest, that agape love that loves in spite of the person that's the object of the love. Here's a controversial one. Mom and dad, you will love your kids the best when you don't love them the most. Yeah, that's true. You see, in Cary, North Carolina, there aren't too many people that are going to tell you that. Because we, all of us, we go hang out at the little soccer fields, right, on Saturday morning. Oh, go, go, yeah, oh, look, oh, whoo. Sometimes I'm like, go, your kid can't play soccer. Your kid stinks. No, 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 no. Oh, honey, you were so wonderful. You're so fantastic. You're the best soccer player. Mommy said I'm the best soccer player. Boy, she's the object of my love. That's what we're supposed to do, right? If you're a parent living in Cary, North Carolina, that's what you're supposed to be about. The kids become the object of your attention and you love them the most. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying in this text is, if you love those kids more than you love me, you are not loving them the best. You will love those kids the best when you love Jesus the most. When the most important thing in your life is loving God in an extravagant way, you are going to be an awesome parent. You will. You say, well, how will that that happen? I mean, if I don't make it to every game and I don't do this and I don't do that, how will it ever happen? It just will. Because when you do things based on biblical principle, when you are the kind of man, the kind of woman that God wants you to be, you will be the kind of mom, the kind of dad that does an incredible job with your kids. There's some of you that could testify to that this morning. You know that's true. When you love God the most, you'll have no problem prioritizing your time, your money, or your energy. 
You're going to love your friends the best when you love Jesus the most as well. When your life is consumed with love for Jesus, trust me, you're going to be an incredible friend. You'll be the kind of person that people seek out for counsel, uh, for companionship. I want to challenge you to be that kind of a friend, that friend that is so consumed with loving Jesus, because when you are, you will be an incredible friend. You will be the people that seek out, that, that people seek out. Be that kind of a friend. Look for that kind of a friend. It really all comes down to uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus said that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We are to live differently. We live for the purpose that we were created to live. We're involved in the things that we were created and commissioned to do. In this particular text, Jesus gives us uh, three requirements of truly devoted followers of Jesus. I've only given you one. And while we don't have time in this particular series to explore the other two, let me end our time this morning together by saying that Jesus, with his own words, gave the crowds one last word. Look in verse 35. He said to them, let he who has ears to hear, hear. Now, funny thing, when I walked in this morning and I looked at many of you, I didn't see one person that came in without ears. Not one person that came in with only one ear. Some of you that came in with two ears and they're not working exactly like you would like them to work. I get that. But you've got other apparatus that you're, you know, so you can hear this morning is my point. Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, hear it. James would have said it this way. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you know that loving Jesus the most will help you love everybody else the best, if you believe that to be true, then the challenge is to do just that. Men, love your wives because you love Jesus the most. Women, love your husbands because you love Jesus the most. People, Love each other better because you love Jesus the most. Parents, love your kids better by falling more extravagantly, deeply in love with Jesus. You don't do your kids any favors by continuing to lavish huge amounts of time on them, resources on them, without a passionate example of love for Jesus. You do them no good. They have the latest fashions. They drive a nice car. But they are not equipped for life. You have not equipped them to live the life that Jesus says is the life that is that abundant life. It's only when you are deeply in love with Jesus that you really love other people. One pastor summarized this text well when he said this. Salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation occurs in a moment, but discipleship takes a lifetime. Jesus asked whether or not you truly want to live a life of discipleship. If you're a disciple, do not quit. Everything that matters is hard. Everything that matters is costly. Do not quit. Don't waste your life. Make your death count. Do not raise your hand unless you're ready to see it through to the end. Love Jesus the most so that you can love others the best. A politically incorrect statement? For sure. Back in that culture, back in that day, and today. 
There are many of us that will hear the truth of this text. We will hear a story of a couple that lives right here in the triangle. And we will walk out those doors and we will live exactly like we've been living. Only to come, I believe, for many of us to the end of our lives and be incredibly disappointed that the very thing that mattered the most we failed to do. And that was to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you love him the most, you love others 